When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross. This is our Fox Weather Tracking the Tropics podcast number eight of the 2022 hurricane season. On today's episode, we'll talk with the chief meteorologist of WBZ-TV in Boston and the author of the book, Mighty Storms of New England. Although, of course, it's snow and blizzards that come to mind first when you think about New England weather. In fact, just about every kind of weather imaginable has occurred in New England at one time or the other. New England hurricanes are especially important to talk about because they don't happen very often. And when they do, really bad things can happen from tremendous coastal effects to massive deadly floods. It's all happened with hurricanes in New England. And similarly with tornadoes, not very often, but a horrible disaster can happen. I'll talk with meteorologist and author Eric Fisher about all that and more coming up here in just a moment. I'm recording this on Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. We're ending August with no tropical storms named this month unless something weird happens this afternoon, and I doubt it will. Okay, we can say it. It's really weird. There's a verb in the seasonal hurricane forecasting business to 2013. The question is, is this season 2013-ing? So 2013 was a year that was predicted to be A busy hurricane season with more activity than normal, but it ended up the opposite. Only two low-end hurricanes formed, and none of them were Category 3 or higher. There was a lot of dry air in the tropics that year, but exactly why is and was not clear. So there are similarities to this year. There are three systems to watch right now, but only one is a potential threat to land on our side of the ocean, and it's most likely to stay offshore of the islands, but we'll have to watch it as it heads toward the waters north of Puerto Rico and east of the Bahamas to be sure that none of the islands are affected. The U.S. is not going to be affected by this storm. And the long-range computer models show relatively little activity, so it's a mystery so far. It's a good kind of mystery, but a mystery nonetheless. So let's take a break, and I'll be back with my conversation with author and meteorologist Eric Fisher in just a moment. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Hi, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a minute since we had a chance to talk. It has been. So you did a lot of research uh, for your book, and it's uh, terrific. And uh, was that fun or fun for a minute? Or, or um, you know, what can you 
say about wading through all the old records and and uh, everything you had to do? Yeah, you know, it's interesting as uh, as weather geeks, we have a, a background in most of the big storms. You kind of have come across them in reading here and there, or you've studied them a little bit, but not really digging into them enough to actually weave together a story for a book. So it was an interesting process. The timing worked out great because I was approached by this publisher, Globe Pequot. Uh, I was in late fall of 2019, and then we decided to go ahead with it and winter of 2020. And then we know what happened around uh, February into March of 2020. The world shut down. That's and, right. Uh, so yeah, so you suddenly had time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was home a lot or um, just uh, we were doing a lot of fun things out in the town for mm -hmm. sure for several months there. So we were um, able to kind of focus on this and really dig into some of the archives, some of the old storm prediction center records, hurricane center records, um, and just go through some of the old newspaper accounts and really get into the nitty gritty of some of these big classic New England storms. And I chose mostly older storms. And so that took a little bit more research because there just really aren't uh, you know, as many current records as what we might have for something five or 10 years ago. So were you able to do it mostly online? Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, libraries weren't even open um, at right. the time where this um, was kind of being written. So it was a bit of a challenge, mm -hmm. but a lot of these records are still preserved online. Um, you know, you basically go through a lot of old um, newspapers across the region, um, going through some of their accounts, going through some of those government websites as well. And just a lot of people have maintained great databases about these storms. Uh, I think a lot of weather geeks are really into their stats and their history. And so there's a lot of good information out there for anybody who's looking to, to find some. Yeah, especially in New England, I think. So, so you're a New England guy, and I'm going to guess that the thing that got you focused on meteorology was a blizzard. But I've been surprised when I've asked that question in the past. Was it for you? It was. It was wintertime. Um, wintertime and tornadoes. You know, it's a, a little mm -hmm. bit of a mix. I remember a few really good honking snowstorms when I was a kid. And of course, when we were little, all the snowstorms seem a lot bigger than they do now. But um, in 93, we had the Superstorm, which where I lived was a pretty solid event. And we had the Blizzard of 96. Um, and those were a couple of things that really solidified my interest in weather. And then there were a couple of big tornadoes as well. The Great Barrington Tornado was out in the Berkshires. And I lived pretty close to there as a kid. And I remember that day watching the Weather Channel, actually, we were at a barbecue and the sky got green and we we're watching the warning scroll across the screen. I thought, this is awesome. My is that 95? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Memorial Day in 1995. Right, right, right. Um, my mom was, of course, like, petrified and stressed to the max and we're mm -hmm. trying to get home in it. Um, but I just thought it was the most interesting thing. And now so I can, yeah, I can, I can imagine that. I can, I can see you watching the Weather Channel back then. I mean, we kind of all did, right? We all are like, that's where we went when yeah. when uh, we weren't, well, in my case, when I wasn't working at the at the TV station. So there have been a lot of consequential beep, tornadoes beep, in New England. Right? The tornado warning on red would scroll at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Once you heard the beep, you knew something was going down. Exactly, right. But, you know, there are, so there have been these consequential tornadoes in New England, uh, but not many compared to in the south and the Midwest of the Plains, of course. But there have been famous ones, and clearly the Worcester tornado, I guess, in 1953 stands out. So in 53, I mean, that was a big, it was a, like a massive doesn't belong in New England kind of tornado, right? I mean, were people warned at all? Do we know? Because it seems to me that Harry Volkman made the first tornado warning on Oklahoma City uh, TV and radio in 54. So that would yep. have been the next year. So it wouldn't have been a classic tornado warning. So, so did people have any idea or was this like 
out of the blue. Yeah, I thought this was one of the more fascinating storms because it's a time where tornado warnings were very taboo. Uh, you wouldn't really say that there was a tornado possible because could you really have the confidence to say there might be tornadoes today? I mean, today it sounds ridiculous because a week out, we'll say the pattern's ripe for severe weather or maybe even more than a week out. And then you have your outlooks and you have your watches and your warnings. And there's this mm -hmm. whole progression that goes into what might be just one tornado or maybe even no tornadoes in a given day. But on this day, they did have a good inkling that there was a high threshold or a high potential for severe weather. They had seen the reports in Michigan the day before where we had the feature, a Flint area tornado. And they thought that that kind of environment was coming, which is really incredible when you think about it, early 50s. And you still had this really good idea that something severe was going to occur a thousand miles farther east the next day. So they did have this discussion in the Weather Service office, and they didn't want to say tornado because they didn't want to alarm the public. So it didn't go out in the forecast officially that morning. But as the day went on, they did issue the first ever severe thunderstorm warning in New England. Uh, it wasn't a full tornado, but they did put that statement out. Again, at the time, this was like major weather hype to mention severe weather. <laughs> um, by the time they did eventually issue a tornado warning that day, mentioned the tornado potential, it had already touched down and lifted. So it was practice for the real deal today, but it wasn't the best warning that we would get. Obviously, the Springfield tornado, um, you know, that was warned all the way along in 2011. That was the most similar type of tornado 253 um, that we've had. And everyone knew and only three people, uh, I should say only, but, you know, three people lost their lives versus uh, almost a thousand people. So very different type of storm. Yeah, the Worcester tornado, I think it's an underappreciated major disaster in American history, actually, not just New England history. So that period in the first half of the 50s was kind of crazy in New England, right? After the monster tornado hits in 53, then suddenly it's Hurricane Alley. I mean, what do you think people were thinking back then? So how would it be covered today? Yes, it's an interesting exactly. question. Exactly. That's what I think about because, you know, we have our runs of severe weather and they tend to come in buckets. I mean, you know, you know, in Florida, that the 40s really being the standout time for all these hurricane hits. And, you know, in the 50s, we had the Worcester tornado. We had Hurricane Carol. We had Edna. We had Donna. Um, there's another Carol in there in the mix. There's a number of tropical systems that came through. Mm -hmm. um, we also had Hazel on the East Coast. We had um, the Connie and Diane floods in 55, which are still some of the worst floods that we've ever seen in the region. Right. So this was a period of four or five years where it really hit the fan in the weather departments. And what people were thinking at the time, you know, it, it's a different media environment. I, I don't know. Um, but obviously it was a really high impact period of weather. And it led to some big change. And in writing this book, this is what really stuck out to me, is that a lot of these major storms led to some sort of societal or technological change. You know, after Carol, they decided, and Hazel that year, they decided that they needed a centralized national hurricane center to focus just on tropical weather. And that season led to the NHC. And after that Worcester tornado, they developed CELS, um, which is the precursor of the Storm Prediction Center, because it was a really bad severe weather year. So the 50s were kind of a really crucial time in weather forecasting where a lot of these big agencies that are still around today that focus on our highest impact weather were created. 
And I think we got the, the radar system, the WSR-57 was deployed. The first one was deployed in Miami, actually, that that um, fell off the roof of the Hurricane Center and smashed in Hurricane Andrew. But that was that was WSR-57 serial number one, as I recall. Mm-hmm. So talking about Carol, I went back and looked in the Boston Globe from August 31st, 1954, and there's a small article on the front page that says, Hurricane Hits... North Carolina coast, now moving out to sea. Ha ha. And then Mm -hmm. oddly, on the back page of the paper, there's a small article that says New England will feel high winds from hurricane today. You know, that's on the back page of the paper. So it seems to me that that had to have been a late edition somehow. And, you know, and I don't know what the, you know, edition that's online and how all that worked. But but uh, talk about what happened during Carol, because it really is. I think I just don't think people in New England, the Northeast, appreciate that real hurricanes do happen. And I mean, in their real live hurricane events, it's been so long. I mean, it hit Long Island, New York, at about 9 a.m. on that day, right on the day that that uh, it was supposed to go out to sea, according to the front page of the Globe, and then quickly came to New England. Yeah, it's um, interesting to try to put yourself in the shoes of decades ago and how warning worked and how lead time worked or didn't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just changed so much in a relatively short amount of time. And I do think we take for granted. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, a busting of meteorologists whenever something doesn't go exactly as planned. But the idea that you could start your day and not know that a generational weather event was going to occur that same day is kind of mind boggling at this point. I mean, now you get exhausted by the time a storm actually arrives because you've been hearing about it for so long. You're like, all right, come on already. Let's mm-hmm. let's see the storm. Um, but and then Carol's instance, Carol is the last major hurricane landfall that we've had in New England. So you go back almost 70 years now since we had a category three hurricane. And there's something that's very, um, there's some shared characteristics about our major hurricanes, our real deal hurricanes up here. They're usually moving fast. They have a fast forward motion because they don't feel the uh, impact as much of the uh, cooler water up here off the coast of New England, the influence of land interaction as they move farther to the north. They gotta be hauling pretty good. And Carol was moving at a good forward speed. And as a result of that, that most of the weather is on the right side, right? Uh, yes. Because, because it's going so fast and that adds to the wind in the circulation. Yes, the, the relative the relativity of those winds. We saw that in 38 as well, which is also in the book. It was moving so fast, and that right side of the eye of the path was tremendous wind damage. Um, but with Carol, it was a shockingly tropical system still when it got up here. It still had an eye. Um, there's some nice photos on the Connecticut shoreline where you see that that eye, which usually we don't get up here. They're pretty ugly. They're not, they're not Florida hurricanes, so they get up to New England for the most part. And Carol brought a tremendous storm surge and even more remarkable is that we had Edna less than two weeks later, which is also a Category 3 hurricane, which came up across the islands. Right. And the astute weather observer would say, wait a minute. Okay, well, Carol and Edna, where is the D storm? There was another hurricane that just missed us in between those two. So over two weeks' time, we had three hurricanes that almost all hit New England and made landfall. Yeah, it was a crazy time. And during Carol... As I remember, uh, well, I assume WBZ Radio, which is, uh, you work for WBZ TV, but WBZ Radio has been around forever. It's one of the, the big radio station in, in New England. I'm sure they had coverage of of all this happening that morning, even if there wasn't a lot of notice, until 
didn't the the tower fall on the building or something? Is that true or is that apocryphal? <laughs> no, that's uh, that's true. We um, actually are still in the same building now. So WBZ is in its original building that was uh, went on the air in 1948, and BZ Radio was also in the building up until just a couple of years ago, as a matter of fact. And that same transmission tower was in the same spot um, up until this point, and it was crumpled in half. But BZ Radio was able to get back on the air fairly quickly um, using a different transmission tower, different relay tower. So they were able to broadcast through a good portion of the storm, um, fortunately. But that was uh, ripped apart. The steeple of the Old North Church over in Boston was also broken during that storm. Right. Uh, it was it was a big one. And it's a reminder that these things can happen here. And it's just a matter of time, whether it's this season or 10 years from now or 40 years from now, something similar is going to come back. And I'm not quite entirely convinced that we're ready for that type of an event up here. It's very different than a hurricane landfall in, in Texas or Florida. Um, our topography is very different. It's much more complex. Um, our soils are different. We have a lot more rock up here compared to more tropical locations. Um, so it's it's going to be a mess the next time something like Carol comes through. Well, and people just aren't used to the process of really kind of no. understanding it. And they come on so fast, which is really maybe the most daunting part of it, because if it's a significant storm, as you said, they're, they're moving fast. I know in Carol, I remember from many years ago uh, that the television was knocked off the air. Both TV stations, there were only two TV stations, commercial TV stations, then Channel 5 was not on the air yet, I guess. It was just 7 and 4 is all that existed in 1954. But uh, anyway, there was no television, which is an interesting thing to think about today. It's not that hard to knock a TV station. Yeah, and I mean, we're... We're talking about the 50s, but even in the early 90s, we had Hurricane Bob, um, which was our last hurricane landfall in New England. So it's even been a long time from, since we've had any hurricane make landfall here. But my wife tells a story about they were on family vacation and they went to get a coffee one morning and there's a newspaper there and it said, Hurricane Bob hits today. And they're like, oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> the first they'd heard of it. And they had to uh, pack up the car immediately and evacuate the cave that day they barely got off before they closed the bridges but that's only 30 years ago and people still were not so much in the know that a hurricane was about to hit yeah bob was in uh, 91 the year before andrew and and because in new england you have uh, buzzards bay there on the cape and you have narragansett bay in rhode island that face to the south if you get a hurricane like carol or, or the 1938 storm that, that tracks to the west of there it's pushing all that water up into the bay right and you had that that occur in a big way in Carroll and, and 38. And I guess that was what caused them to put up the flood barrier in Providence, right? It was because yes. of Carroll. It was talked about before Carroll, but then finally it was like, okay, we got to do this to keep the water from flooding uh, downtown Providence. When, when you're communicating to folks on the Cape, because Boston TV serves there, I mean, this is a big thing. This is a big, important aspect, right, of, of communicating is to get people to realize that an evacuation really is necessary from those vulnerable areas, uh, especially with waterways that face south. Absolutely. And, you know, it's difficult, like you mentioned, in a place where it's not frequent. You know, if you are in Florida, Louisiana, you're kind of used to the drill. You go through it every year or two. And up here, we just don't. Usually our systems are ugly. They're more rainmakers than big windmakers or big surge makers. And so when that time comes, it'll be difficult to really get people to understand what's possible because most people will not have seen 
you know, the worst of a hurricane. And that's kind of the, the hard part of New England hurricanes is that usually when one comes along, very few people are alive who saw the last one. So there's not a lot of that. I've seen this before. I know where water is going to go. I know how bad this power outage could get. Um, they, they come every once every 50 to 150 years on the average. Right. Yeah. Looking back as far as we go, although we tend to count the biggest ones and there were back, you know, back a long time ago in the 19th century, 18th century, there were more that we just don't think about, which I was going to talk about in a second. Hey, Brian here. I'll be back with WBZ-TV chief meteorologist and author Eric Fisher after this quick break. So you mentioned Edna, which came, what, 10 days after... Carol, nine or ten days after Carol, how was how well, was that different? What were you gonna say? Um, it was different in that it was a little farther east. Mm -hmm. So where Carol came in toward the Connecticut shore, Edna was just kind of screaming by the islands over by Martha's Vineyard in between there and Nantucket. And there's an interesting quote from uh, one guy who's in the book who was on the island. They interviewed him afterwards, and he's like, "Well, there wasn't much left to destroy, so we <laughs> didn't feel it as much because it was still a mess from Carol." Um, that water had already gone into places and uh, done its damage and the wind had already knocked down a lot of the trees and the power. So it was kind of like, okay, well, here we go again. Yeah, a lot um, of places the power was just coming back on too, right? Mm -hmm. When when Edna comes. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about now. And then in October, here comes Hazel. Now, yeah. there was a concern, I guess, that this was going to be an issue in New England, but it, it kind of veered west and it ended up hitting Toronto really badly, and I mean, in a big time way. But you know, thinking about it, I know it was the strongest wind in in New York City ever recorded in Manhattan at the Battery there from Hazel when it tracked way inland. It's the oldest uh, hurricane, oldest memory I have, by the way, in my life is Hurricane Hazel. The the power going out and my my mother freaking out, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever to have the wind whistling. <laughs> outside in in south jersey uh but in new england you know i can't think of any lasting effect of hazel was there an effect from hazel in uh, in in new england in general no it didn't stick out as much as some of the others that were clustered around that time um still some some heavy rain some gusty winds you know even you know not like not like sandy but sandy a little farther south i guess i would say where we had Good amount of wind and erosion, but in terms of the biggest impacts from Sandy, they were just south of Massachusetts and just south of New Hampshire and Vermont. But um, Hazel was just a little too far south and west out of the picture to have a big impact around here. Yeah. And then a year later, you know, three more storms are coming up the East Coast. They didn't all get to New England, right? And in fact, none of them really got to New England as a big windstorm. But you mentioned Connie and Diane. Yes. So that was, it was the net net of that. It was just a a, a big flood. Um, I mean, it was a, yeah. a, a big flood. I mean, it was a giant flood, right? And here, these, this is another example of the difficulty of communication of different types of storms where we always talk about the focus on wind and then there's been more of a focus on just the impacts from rain or some of the other things that come along with these storms. Well, Connie and Diane, both tropical storms, neither made landfall here. You end up with the worst flood in you know, generations across Massachusetts and Connecticut. So how does that happen? 
Um, it's just the way that the tropical rain gets entrained into uh, uh, different boundaries that set up here. So with one, Connie, we had a, a north-south axis of rain. And then Diane was more of a paralleling the Long Island coastline. So we got more of a horizontal axis of rain. It's where they crossed out toward the Berkshires in particular in the Litchfield Hills of Connecticut uh, that we had over 20 inches of rainfall between the two storm systems. They were very close together. So it was so saturated that we had tremendous flooding from those two storms. And it goes to show you that you don't need a hurricane. You don't even need a landfall to have really high impact weather if a tropical system is nearby. Yeah, the tropical moisture in, and the Northeast or New England is, is a bad combination. I mean, witness Irene in 2011, for example, in Vermont. I mean, it just yeah. tropical moisture over the, the higher elevations. Essentially and it just it doesn't take as much. Right. I mean, you see yeah. some of these storms in the south that have over 20 inches of rain and there's some flooding. I mean, Irene had five to eight inches of rain in Vermont and it did all that damage right. with just five to eight inches of rain. Because it's, it's compounded because the rain all goes downhill and ends up at the bottom of the hill. And just one more question about 1955 is the, the storm that came after Diane, Connie and Diane, that was coming north, Category 4, it's off Florida. It's kind of heading north, and there was some concern about it, uh, spelled I-O-N-E. Is that Ione, or is that Ione? Have you ever heard it pronounced? Do you know? I actually, I couldn't say with full confidence how it's pronounced. No. I, I know it's, um, it's been a mystery to me here all these decades. I thought maybe <laughs> maybe you'd heard somebody say it. Anyway, it's either Ione or, years or, from, or Ione. They were all uh, women's names, too. Before yeah, the they all were. Exactly. And they left. used them every year there for through the 50s until they realized that that wasn't going to work. For 54 and, and 55, I think they used them same names, right? And Carol was the first retired name. It's the right. first time a hurricane had its name retired. So there was a Carol right before it. And they said, okay, we've had enough of the Carols. Carols have <laughs> yeah. done enough damage around We got to do a different scheme. Yes. And then they alternate <laughs> them every other year. And then a variety of other changes until 79 when the current system went into effect. So of the big New England hurricanes, 1635, 1815, 1938, which was the worst storm, do you think, based on you know your research? 1938, obviously... There were a lot more people and things around to get hit, and we yeah. have more detail about it. But, but was it the worst of the three, as far as you know? It's hard to say. I always say that, you know, all weather is local, so the worst is the worst in your town. So mm -hmm. it depends on where you live, where you were during that particular event. I mean, we can piece together the 1635, you know, great colonial hurricane we have people ask, how do you know? How do you know there was a hurricane? Well, that one we happen to know. It's amazing that we know that. Yeah. So you can look at, I mean, people were very observant. You got to think back in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, people are learning leaps and bounds about the world. And to do that, they are studying everything. They're very watchful. We're looking at our phones all day long now, but people to survive had to be very cognizant of their environment and what was happening. And you're in a brand new world in the 1600s. And so a lot of the original uh, governors of the colonies, they kept very good diaries with accounts of winds, what direction they were swirling in, you know, mm -hmm. different points. You can put them together and say, OK, well, they had a southeast wind here and a northwest wind here. This is their damage. OK, this is where the circulation center must have gone. And then Brown University actually did a sediment study, kind of like an ice core at the beach, if you will, right. uh, where they can go down and look and see where there's been big dumps of sediments over the years. And that can tell you a lot about storm surge. You can see the bigger events where there's large washes of sediment that come inland. 
Um, so by that, you can kind of backtrack and say, okay, in 1635, we see this sediment core. We know it was this deep and it went this far, which means the storm surge was X. If the storm surge was this, then the pressure must have been around here and the wind speeds must have been around here because you need this to drive water to that type of a, a level. So that's how we kind of know the details of that storm. I can't imagine going through a storm that strong in that time where obviously structures are not quite as sound as now. Um, it's You're already terrified, I would imagine, for the most part, because you're living in this completely new foreign place. The forests of New England are wild back in the 1600s. So is that the worst? I don't know. You know, 1938, I'm inclined to say, is the worst one that we've seen. The sheer number of downed trees right. from that hurricane, it's hard to fathom now. Um, the equivalent of the entire White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire came down during that storm. If you look at how many trees were felled, um, we would lose power for two months if that happened today. Um, so something like that is kind of the storm that keeps us awake at night as New England forecasters. It's not the blizzards. The blizzards are almost more fun than they are uh, you know, higher impact. It's that big hurricane returning. It is going to be an absolute mess uh, when that happens again. The forest, the landscape will change. And it's hard to imagine how you would even begin to communicate it, or I would begin to communicate it, anybody would begin to communicate it, because you have this storm off of Florida that, you know, since it's coming so far north, the little tiny bit of angle difference makes so much difference in the impact of whether there is impact at all or there is a tremendous impact, right? It's a whole different kind of difficulty than you have with a cone that's aimed at, the Gulf Coast or aimed at Florida or or something like that because you don't have storms moving at uh, 50 miles an hour. Yeah, or something. I mean, hundreds of storms have just yeah. barely recurved off the yeah. coast of Cape Cod, yeah. but a couple have not made the full curve, and it's those couple that rewrite history. You know, you, you mentioned the um, the cores that they did in, in Rhode Island, right? The Brown um, University people did in Rhode Island. And uh, it seems to me when I read about that a long time ago that they mentioned the 1638 hurricane that they found some sort of sediments from the 1638 hurricane there three years after the big 1635 hurricane. But we don't hear about that because there are so few records about the 1638 hurricane. And I don't think actually, uh, I don't recall anybody ever really talking about that no. very much, right? <laughs> But in the 19th century, there was so like having good records, having good PR is good for a hurricane if it's going to, you know, have legs uh, on into the future, I guess. That's the, that's the lesson. Yeah. And, you know, things are somewhat sparse if you go back in time. And, you know, now we every everything that swirls, we have records for everything that uh, has 35 mile per hour winds, 40 mile per hour winds. We've got the whole history of. But, you know, back in those days, it has to hit something or it has to affect a number of ships who survive to tell the tale and have some measurements. Otherwise, you don't know what's going on in the Atlantic and, and how active some of these seasons were. You can infer some things, but in terms of a, a really good, solid historical record, there are certainly going to be gaps when you go a few hundred years back. Doesn't it seem to you, now that you've looked at all this, that these things come in clumps? You know, yes. like 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 if, assuming the 1638 is a thing, you know, you have that little period, 1635 or 1638. Maybe there were others. I don't know. And then in the early 19th century, you have the big 1815 storm. But I think there were two in 1804 in in the Boston area and in New England. One was the big snow hurricane and all that. That's why that sticks in my mind. And then you have, you know, 
from the 30s, 40s, 50s into up to 1960, that cluster that included the 38 storm, but there's a big storm in 44 that yeah, came up. It definitely years. seems that you get stuck in a regime. Um, and we know that there are decadal cycles for a number of, of different climate factors that mm-hmm. we watch, whether it's, um, you know, Pacific patterns, North Atlantic patterns, but sunspots. In, yeah. Sunspots even too. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of things that definitely happen in recurring intervals. Mm-hmm. It does seem that some of the bigger weather events, they tend to come in clumps, um, whether it's droughts or uh, heavy rain years or hurricane landfall years or busy, severe weather patterns. Um, you know, I'm not a climatologist. I'm a meteorologist. I know people have a, a specialty in the big picture of how things kind of come together and, and play out over time. But absolutely, I think that you get stuck in a certain type of pattern where it just wants to do one thing. Um, that sticks out in the historical record. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So we can't talk about New England weather, of course, without talking about blizzards. So is there one blizzard that you remember most or you think was the the blizzard for New England in your research? The blizzard for New Well, in Boston, it's 78. And you can't say anything right. otherwise. Otherwise, people will slash your tires and throw tomatoes at you because <laughs> right. 78 is the storm and there are no other contenders. Right, um, yes. I will say... I think that's because people. some people are still around for that. I mean, obviously, you had the 1888 one, the, yes. the very New York, New York City and the whole Northeast, too, right? But There are so many right. big snowstorms around here. Yeah. I mean, if you go through... Try, trying to whittle it down to a few of the biggest was very difficult because there's so many unique events, different types of storms. Mm-hmm. And really, when you get to the top of the scale, they're all pretty close. There's a lot of storms that have produced 20 to 28 inches of snow in the Boston area. So what makes one bigger than another? Um, I think you need to put together all the elements of a blizzard, not just snowfall. So for me, you know, we had a storm last January, which was one of the snowiest snowstorms we've ever recorded in Boston. Mm-hmm. We had over two feet of snowfall. It was at the top of the charts. But to me, it was kind of like, eh, it didn't have the bells and the whistles. There was no flooding. There were no real major strong winds that caused tons of power outages. It was light. It was fluffy. Um, it just kind of I think that has a lot to do with it because that has everything to do with whether you can get your car out. I mean, if you yeah. go back and I've watched the, the TV coverage from the 1978 blizzard and also listened to WBZ's radio coverage of it. I mean, it was incapacitating now part of it was i you know there are a lot of people on the road and got stuck and and abandoned their cars and all that kind of stuff happened that doesn't tend to happen today the government's more proactive about shutting things down although not not every time not always not always (laughs) right not 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 always for sure so ironically in 78 i have a little experience with snowstorms of 78 the great blizzard of 78 if you google that is a different storm (laughs) out west it's in the midwest right that happened in late january before the the new england storm had the third lowest pressure of any non-tropical storm in the u.s and louisville it was on top of a 15 inch snowfall in the middle of january so you had the 15 louisville you had the 15 inch snowfall and then you had the great blizzard at the end of the month and this is the month that i was moving from denver to louisville to be news director at wlky um (laughs) and uh needless to say that was a a crazy thing so i was literally knee deep in in snow uh during that time so yeah it was uh anyway it was a it was just 
crazy one storm after the other. But again, it's a different kind of clump, I guess. But the the pattern can get stuck like that. That's not really, you know, unexpected. Yeah, no, it was just a wild year altogether with the obviously the storm out to the Midwest. But also for us, we had a January storm that collapsed the Civic Center roof in Hartford, which uh, I recall uh, hearing a lot about growing up um, in Western Mass in Connecticut, where it fortunately happened just after everyone had left for a basketball game. But we had this heavy, wet snowfall and the roof just caved in. Um, could have been an absolute catastrophe if it was during the game itself. And then that storm went on its way. And then we had another big snowstorm, which produced over 20 inches of snowfall. That was in the top 10 list of Boston snowstorms until the next blizzard of 78. Unfortunately, all the snow had largely melted from the first one before the next one came through. Um, but the 78 blizzard really checks all the boxes, which is why I think it sticks out in so many people's minds still. A really slow movement, tons of snow had tremendous coastal flooding, which to me, that's that's something that has to be included if you're going to have a big all-time Boston snowstorm. Big coastal flooding is a major element of it, and the 78 certainly had that. And then you have just the shutdown of society aspect. In recent times, you know, our February 2013 blizzard was not far off from 78 in terms of snowfall or coastal flooding or strong winds. Um, it was up there. They, they weren't far apart. But the difference is in 2013, they shut down the highways. Right. They have a travel ban. No one's going outside. They have all the equipment ready to go. Forecasts were excellent. So this is uh, kind of the problem of the book. When I was trying to think of storms, it was tough for me to pick more recent events because in theory and hopefully in practice, you know, the purpose of modern forecasting is for nothing to happen. Right. The goal is that this weather should be something that we shrug off, we're prepared for, and we move on. And in 2013, yeah, sure, there was a lot to clean up afterwards, but we kind of moved on after a couple of days. Where 78 was something that just lasted and lasted. It took so much work. National Guard's coming in. People are trapped. All these cars have to be moved. The forecasts were shaky. Some people had a good uh, outlook on it. Some people said, yeah, a couple inches of snow. You know, that kind of stuff doesn't typically happen anymore. And so it's tough to pick a a more recent storm, even if they're similar in nature, because the impact is much lower now than it used to be. Yeah, although in 2013, right, at the, in Atlanta, the snow fiasco in, in Atlanta, that's a whole different scenario and a whole different kind of situation, but but it's still a version of that can still happen. Things still happen. So were we at the Weather Channel in 2013? Uh, I was. Yeah, I was there. So we were there. That's when we were there, yes, for that that whole thing, I remember that. My story. wife and I were in different hotels next to our offices on different ends of the city because you couldn't go anywhere. You could not go <laughs> anywhere. Drive. That's right. I, I I looked around the Weather Channel. I said, you don't need me here. I made it out with like five minutes to spare to get across town to to get home. It was uh, it was something. So you talk about like a big variety of weather scenarios in, in your book because it's New England uh, after all. Is there one kind of scenario that that happened that you think is most surprising to people when they first learn about it? I think the one most surprising thing for most people is that the deadliest natural disaster in New England was a heat wave. Hmm. Um, it's not one of these big storms or floods. It's the 1911 heat wave that killed the most people um, of, of all these weather events. And that, I think that's shocking to a lot of people. Yeah. You think the big ferocious storms, the tornadoes and the hurricanes, but now, heat can be uh, very insidious uh, when it comes to 
health and especially at a time where it was really could barely get ice. I mean, there's some sources, but it wasn't easy to go get a bunch of ice. Uh, certainly no air conditioning, um, fewer ways to just cool off. Um, it's not like everyone could hop in their car and go to the beach because it's 1911. Some people have cars, but not many. Um, so it's, it's just a different time. And then this heat wave hits. And I think it's also surprising to people that a lot of these heat records were set 100 years ago and not sometime recently. I think we have a higher baseline of heat now, but in terms of big standout events, extreme patterns always happen and they can happen at any time. And in that year, we had something set up that it created a really exceptional uh, triple digit type of heat wave event here in New England. Yeah. I thought you were going to say the, the 1815, 1816 event, but I agree with you. I, I think the heat it probably is more surprising, but they, they you know, it's a year the without day. a summer uh, from Tambora, the mm-hmm. huge volcano, biggest volcano in uh, historic time, I guess. Blankets the northern hemisphere with, with uh, dust and debris in the, the stratosphere and cools everything off uh you know you have the hurricane in 1815 and then the, this event that drives people out of new england in 1816 because of what it snows every month i mean pretty imagine uh such Does it a make thing. you feel small when you think about you know we're going about our lives and a, hur- uh, a volcano erupts and just everything's chaos and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it well and especially since the volcano erupted in the spring of, of 1815, and then it was the summer of 1816 that it had the, the biggest effect, right? Yeah. And in between, um, there was a giant hurricane. <laughs> I mean, so it was uh, <laughs> hard to hard to imagine. Uh, you know, Biblical it, times, for sure. Exactly. It's just, Sometimes, you know, I guess, I mean, obviously, the, the eruption and the hurricane and all that, you know, were coincidence, like in Charleston. 1885, they had a, a, a big hurricane, major hurricane hits Charleston, South Carolina in 1886. They get a big earthquake that, you know, and things hadn't were just being repaired from the hurricane when the earthquake kind of wrecks everything again. Still in Charleston, you see the earthquake bolts in the in the buildings there left over from, from that. So anyway, you're in New England, so something is guaranteed to be uh, crazy. Um, what do you think about communicating in the modern world? Is it easier or, or harder now to reach people than it was, say, you know, when Harvey Leonard became the famous TV guy in Boston in, in 1978? Harvey just retired, by the way, after a yeah, great one, career. One uh, of the best. One, one of the, the best, absolute yes. best meteorologists and so well trusted. And I'm kind of jealous of him in a way <laughs> um, because he got to work at a time where people kind of huddled around with their dinner around the six o'clock newscast. And you knew that you had everyone's ear and you knew that you could craft a, uh, you know, the message that you needed to get across about a particular event or a storm. You knew you were talking to all those people and you're all kind of in it together. And everything these days, you know, there's so many sources for information. It's a constant battle and there's so much bad information, not just in weather, but in everything mm-hmm. that you can't really get your arms around a storm and control the message. And I'm, I don't mean that in a way where we want to tell people what to do. It's more just a Kind of keeping things in Pandora's box instead of people saying, well, I saw this or I saw this model or what about these 150 mile per hour winds that someone posted? You, you have no control over that at all. You know that some of that information is complete bunk, but it's out there. So what do you do? You try to stay in your lane. You try to be a voice of reason. You try to earn people's trust. You do that by giving good information and hopefully being accurate. 
Uh, and if you can earn that trust, then hopefully you become that source um, where people go to and, and hopefully you don't let them down. But it's definitely very challenging now when there's just so many places for people to go um, instead of two or three or four. Now, some people might say it's nice to have more options. It used to be just here's your three TV stations and, and that's it. Um, but um, it, it's definitely challenging now. Uh, there's no doubt about it. We all know that we live in a world where people who say the most ridiculous things get the most attention. Um, unfortunately, being a fairly conservative or um, you know, kind of low-key presenter, I don't think it, it doesn't work as well as it might have in the past. Yeah, well, I talk about this you know, with hurricanes all the time. I mean, compared to 1992 and Hurricane Andrew, uh, you know, it was easier to communicate back then because people turned on the television and, and that's where they thought they were going to get the best information. Now, people don't have that sense of, okay, that's the, where I'm going to get the best because they're so used to getting it from, you know, a hundred different sources or whatever sources happen to pop up and happen to look a little bit interesting. I think the, the issue is trying to communicate a coherent message. So you have an idea of what's happening and how do you get that into the, the viewers' brains when they're, when they're going all these different directions. That's just so so hard to, I think it's impossible today. So like, like you say, I, I agree with you that you got to do your thing, stay in your lane and, and uh, uh, address what you can address and try and uh, you know, mitigate those problems to the extent you can. But basically it's by being reliable. Yeah, and people are so battered by media now. I feel like you're just getting hit with news or information from every angle. And so I think some of the defense mechanism to that is sometimes to shut it out, mm -hmm. which is another challenge. You know, people say, well, I've heard about the storm enough. I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear any more details about it. And so by the time it actually gets here, you know, people are so fatigued from information that you know, hopefully they're, they're still making the right choices. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, there's only a few events every year or even every couple of years that are truly big. You have to do something to prepare for this types of events. Mm -hmm. um, most of the time, it's more getting you out the door, planning your barbecues, uh, going on your vacations, getting your garden to, to grow and not uh, drown in water or dry out too much like this summer. Exactly. Um, but in those few events, you, you have to hope that people have a trusted source and they, they follow that source. Well, I think you're doing a great thing by talking about these extreme events because, uh, you know, that lives change as we we learned here in South Florida, you know, 30 years ago that people divide their lives between before Andrew and after Andrew. You know, it's uh, th those things happen. And and uh, I'm sure that people in New England that live through it divide their lives between before the 1938 hurricane and after because life changed significantly maybe not in Boston, but certainly over much of New England. Absolutely. I mean, 38 changed our, our forest, changed our landscape. Um, you know, different types of trees took over in the absence, you know, the, the gap left behind by that hurricane. And so we owe some of our famous fall foliage and some of our forests as they are currently constituted to that storm. Um, in terms of 78, you know, it's still sticking around in everyone's minds. The reason that people still go out for bread and milk I don't even know how that makes any sense. Why, what do you need bread and milk for, for a snowstorm in 2022? But that's why people do it. They yeah. still talk about this thing from years and years ago. They, they stick in your mind. They're, they're you know, flashbulb memories. You know you, where you uh, were when that storm hit. Yeah. Yep, ab uh, absolutely. So it's the big ones that really um, can 
change everything. All right, Eric, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope some people enjoy Mighty Storms of New England. It's definitely not every big storm in New England, but I try to pick out a few of the the top tier outlier kind of events. And uh, I think it's a good gateway book for anyone who's interested in New England weather. It's a terrific book. I really enjoyed it. All right, take care and I'll be right back. And welcome back. A lot of New England hurricanes also hit or affect Long Island, New York, of course. So just think what would happen if a storm like the 1938 hurricane came during the summer instead of in September. It actually hit Long Island and New England on September 21st when a lot of the summertime people were gone. During the summer, the barrier islands like Fire Island off Long Island would be full of tourists as would Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and Cape Cod, among lots of other tourist destinations in the Northeast. How many people would leave, do you think, for a hurricane near the Bahamas, even though it might hit Long Island or New England or somewhere in the Northeast the next day? People have often rented their vacation times there along the coast well in advance. It's a daunting proposition. These storms that move 40 or 50 miles an hour are a nightmare. Just think about the chaos, not to ruin anybody's Labor Day or anything, by the way, but it's a big problem, but not for this year. And here's another annoying hurricane fact. One of the few years in the record book without a storm in August was 1961. There had only been one named storm. It was a hurricane by the end of August, and that happened way back in June. Well, in September, six storms were named, including two Category 4s and one Category 5. The big impact came from Category 4 Hurricane Carla. That hit the Texas coast north of Corpus Christi, but had a giant impact on the entire coast, including the Houston area. And then there was a Category 5 in October, Hurricane Hattie, that hit Belize and is still remembered there as a horrible and deadly event that forced them to actually move the capital city of Belize. So the odds are we're not done for 2022. That's our podcast for this week. Coming up next week, we'll have another podcast looking back at Hurricane Andrew. If you know the story, you know that at 3.30 a.m. that morning that Andrew was approaching South Florida, we moved off the anchor desk and into a storage area that came to be called the Bunker. Well, news anchor Kelly Craig was with me at the desk, and I joined sports director Tony Segreto, who was already set up in the bunker. Shortly after that, Kelly joined us, and we were there as Andrew made landfall south of Miami. Well, Kelly Craig and Tony Segreto are coming up next week. So be sure you subscribe to our Tracking the Tropics podcast so you get an alert when the new podcast is posted. A reminder, remember to download the Fox Weather app on your phone. First, you can get your local forecast without a bunch of annoying ads that you have to scroll past. And you can watch the live stream of Fox Weather on your phone or your iPad by just clicking in the upper right at any time, and it's free. And you can watch Fox Weather at foxweather.com or on the Roku channel, YouTube channel, Amazon Fire, and other streaming platforms. So I'll see you there on Fox Weather when the tropics are active. And follow me on Twitter, at B. Norcross, and on Facebook and on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Brian Norcross. Be well, and please stay informed.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.